The rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 4 this morning, looking at those closing verses. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Uh, maybe we just gave you one this morning. You can find a table of contents, and you can also find a page number and find Romans chapter 4 and follow along with us. Let me go ahead and pray one more time and ask for God's help in our understanding and application. God, help us to understand your revelation of yourself and of your will. Help us to understand your word, and we know that we can't do that ultimately apart from your Holy Spirit working, and so we ask for that to happen so that we might not only understand, so that we might live in light of who you are and what you've said is true. We might live lives of worship that glorify Jesus Christ and bring honor to him. In Jesus' name, amen. When Mark Twain, the so-called father of American literature, said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so, he effectively captured the sentiment of many, from very religious people to atheists. Atheists for obvious reasons. Very religious people, because so much of the time they, like atheists, treat faith as if it were on an entirely different plane from reality. Well, today, by way of contrast, we're going to look at a piece of literature that's, quite frankly, out of Twain's literary league altogether, but is the authority on faith. In view is not only the Bible... Not only the New Testament, but the New Testament book of Romans. Romans has been called by more than one scholar a detailed treatise on faith. And Romans chapter 4, of all chapters in the book of Romans, emphasizes this matter of faith in a detailed way. And so we'll look at it looking at this matter of faith and the significance of faith. We're going to focus on verses 18 to 25 this morning. And as we look at those concluding verses in Romans chapter 4, we'll be able to highlight a number of facts about faith. Facts about faith that are vital to Christianity, that are, that are vital to understanding faith, what it is and what it, what it is not. I'll refer to them as seven faith facts vital to Christianity. Seven faith facts vital to Christianity. And I know we won't get done with all seven of them. Six and seven are probably the best. That's just me trying to get you to come back next Sunday. Uh, but really, they hit their high point at the very end. But we'll look at the first five this morning, and I trust you won't be disappointed as we understand faith better. And before we launch in and start with verse 18, if we could just step back, literally for me and figuratively for you, and we can understand what brings us to this point in the book of Romans, I think it would be helpful. Some of you are just joining us. We haven't been in Romans for a number of weeks now. So what brings us to this point where we get to Romans 4, which is all about faith? It's all about Abraham as, if you will, the example of faith. Well, at this point in time, we, we really want Romans 4. We need Romans 4 because in chapter 1, we don't even get through the chapter and we learn that everyone who's ever been born except for Jesus Christ Himself, has violated God's holy law. He's the Creator. We're the, the created beings. Therefore, He is above us. Therefore, He has every right to establish law. He has every right to, to have uh, expect us to treat Him as if He were God because He is. And there has been a cosmic level rebellion on planet Earth. 
And Romans chapter 1 makes that clear. And then we move into Romans chapter 2 and we see that try as though we may, we can't bring ourselves into a reconciled relationship with God. Oh, we try. We try through religion. We try through uh, uh, morality. We try through all these different means. And then we get to chapter 3 and we see that none of this works in every argument that it might work to bridge the gap between us and God, our Creator, comes to a crashing halt where Romans chapter 3 tells us that no one does good, no, not one. There is none righteous. And this spells trouble for us. We need to be in a right relationship with God. We need to escape His just or fair punishment. And so how is it that we can be right with God? Many have said the book of Romans is about being right with God. That's, that's what the whole book is about. How can it be done? God is holy and righteous and He has perfect standards. And we're not. Our lives prove it. He proves it by saying so and He's God. What, what, what do we do? It's very bad news. And spiritual depression justifiably sets in until we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And I know we're moving toward chapter 4, but I want to make sure you understand where we've been. In Romans 3, 21, we have this great good news, this gospel news. And it says, having been through all of the darkness, it says in verse 21, look there with me and you'll see that it says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then verse 24, in light of this good news, it says, being justified or declared perfect, declared righteous in in the court of God, if you will. How? As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly or displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. And he goes on to unpack that, but what I want to make sure you see is Romans 1, 2, and 3, we, we are under the just condemnation of God. It's horrible news. And the solution is God. God being gracious and God giving to us what we don't deserve. Giving us righteousness. Giving us righteousness specifically through His Son who is righteous. That He is, even as we just read, the propitiation, the satisfaction. He satisfied the judgment of God. This is the gospel. This is Christianity 101. This is the basics of the Christian faith right here. The work is done in Christ and only in Christ. That's why we say salvation is all of grace because it's this gift from God. It's not by religion. It's not by morality. It's not by us trying harder. It couldn't be done. God is far too righteous and we are far too unrighteous for that ever to work. And yet this great news comes in 321 and following. And how is it appropriated? How is it, that, how, how is it that I can personalize this great work? Oh yes, Jesus came. He was born. He lived a perfectly righteous life. Then He died a righteous death. And He propitiated the wrath of God. But then the question comes, how is it that, that I can benefit? How is it that this can be true for Pat? How is it that this can be true for you? Maybe if you work hard at it, then eventually He'll see that you merited His death for you. 
No, that's not the case at all. What you see over and over again in Romans 3, and we're going to see in Romans 4, it's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's why in Romans 3.22 it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then in 25, through faith. And then in 26, so that He would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, it is a law of faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he just drives this point home that because it is all of God... The one and only way you can personal, personalize, the one and only way you can apply or have applied to you what Christ has done is by belief, by trust, by dependence, not on yourself, not in your religion, but dependence upon Him that He is righteous and He is righteous for you. And I'm just giving you gospel 101. I'm just giving you Christianity 101 at its very core. This is what Christianity is about. And it is a good news message. It is great news that God would save sinners and He would do so through His Son. It's absolutely fantastic. And then we get to Romans 4. And Romans 4 shifts gears, but just barely. What Romans 4 does is it gives us an example. It gives us the example of Abraham. Abraham entered into a right relationship with God and he entered into a right relationship with God the one and only way anyone has ever entered into a right relationship with God and that is through faith. And so God gives us Abraham so that we can see that this is the one and only way and Abraham serves as a great example. You want to gain God's righteousness that you need so that you can be in a right relationship with Him? Look to Abraham. Look to Abraham because Abraham is a great model because he himself wasn't righteous. He believed God. He trusted God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. And that brings us to looking more at Abraham. We've looked at him to a degree, but we're going to begin finishing out these last verses, verses 18 to 25. And we're going to look at these facts about faith and we're going to see Abraham as supplying these facts about faith and it's, become, it's essential that we understand this. Because so many times we think of faith as something that is just something irrational. Or something that is fantasy. Something on a different plane than reality. And that is not what we will see from a biblical perspective from Abraham's example. And that is what I call a long introduction. Let's look at this first Faith fact, essential to understanding Christianity. And let's see and summarize it this way. Faith faces hopelessness. Faith faces hopelessness. God made a huge promise to this Old Testament figure, a key Old Testament figure named Abraham. In 4.17, we learned what the promise was. He's quoting the Old Testament there in verse 17. It says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Quoting right there from Genesis. It's saying, God promised this man Abraham, who wasn't very special in and of himself. Wasn't very special at all, as we will see. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You are going to have offspring and you are going to have this great and mighty, mighty band of people. 
That's the promise I make to you. That is a great promise. But it's looking more and more like it will never come to pass in Abraham's life. And that's why we see Romans 4.18. And you can look there with me where it says, In hope against hope, he believed. Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. Say, what is he saying there? It's pretty obvious if you just stop and think about it. In hope, hope in God, that that God could do what seems like it can't be done because that is hope in God, which is against hope. It's against human hope. When I look at this, look at the situation with my own eyes, it looks like this could never happen. There is no possible way I, because I have no offspring, I have no children, and I'm, I'm getting up there in grandpa years, could ever possibly be a great nation but if i'm going to trust in god if i'm going to believe in god it will be hope in him but it's against hope so in hope against hope he believed one unfortunate translation says who against hope believed in hope but that's not the idea at all he's not having uh, faith in hope or hope in hope he's having hope in god In Romans 1 to 3, we see how horribly we are spiritually in this horrible spiritual condition. And we too, different from Abraham, because we haven't been promised ourselves to have great offspring and, ha- and be uh, the fathers of, a, of many nations. But in Romans 1 to 3, which is the context, we too are hopeless. In fact, if I could borrow from Ephesians, it talks about we are hopeless in this world in Ephesians 2 because of our spiritual state. So here we are hopeless and we look to Abraham as the example because quite frankly if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, 3a let's call it, you're going to conclude after Romans 1, 2, and 3a you're going to say there is no way on God's green earth therefore that I could ever possibly be right with God. This is hopeless. In fact, that's the conclusion you're supposed to come to. In fact, if you don't come to that conclusion, there's no way you'll understand the gospel and you'll no way you'll understand the good news. Romans 1, 2, and 3, it's just 1, 2, and 3 uh, nails in the casket and you say, hopeless! I can never do it! That's why Abraham's a great example. Hopeless situation. There's no way God could make me the father of many nations, even though he's promised that. And yet, it's hope against hope. He believes in God and trusts in God for that. Let's move to a second faith fact. Faith is trust in divine promises. Faith is trust in divine promises. Verse 18 goes on to say, look there with me where it says, He believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, that's Genesis 15.5 where it had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Abraham is not a model of faith because he was so faithful. Abraham was not a model of faith because he had faith in faith. Abraham was not a model of faith because he had faith in himself. But we tend to read it that way too many times. Abraham is the great, great model of faith. Why? Look at verse 8 and think it through. There's multiple issues involved. He believed 
according to that which had been spoken by God. There it is. Why is Abraham lifted up before us in Romans chapter 4 as an awesome example of faith? Why? Because he heard a promise from God given to him and he took God at his word. In other words, he believed God. He believed the revelation of God. That's why I summarized the faith fact as faith is trust in divine promises. Listen to the Genesis 15 account. Genesis 15.5 says, And he, God, took him, Abraham, outside, Abram, and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Say what? Abraham, Grandpa Abraham, Grandpa Age, but he's no grandpa. And God says, come here, I want to show you something. Dark Middle Eastern night, no streetlights to interfere. <laughs> All the stars. I'm going to make you a promise I've never made anyone. I'm going to make you the promise of promises. I promise you to make you a great nation you will have offspring and they will have offspring and you will be the father not only of the Jewish people, you will be the father of many nations. I'm making you the granddaddy of all promises and we would even learn from the New Testament ultimately this is going to find fulfillment in Mashiach and in Christ. It is the promise of all promises in one sense. Abraham is a great man of faith not because he had faith in faith not because he had belief in belief. Not because he had belief in himself. He heard God and took God at his word and believed in the revelation of God. That is biblical faith. Trusting that what God says is true. That's what's happening here. And so we should say faith is trust in divine promises. That's the example of Abraham. We see it as clear as could be. Number three, a third faith fact. This is really just like the first one. I'll word it differently, but it's essentially the same. Faith faces the apparently impossible. Faith faces the apparently impossible. But he's really talking about this idea of something that could never be explained humanly. There's no way this could possibly happen. And this one gets kind of fun. Verse 19. Check this out. Without becoming weak in faith, and if I could just interject before we get to the funny part, the fun part, None of this is saying that Abraham had perfect faith and he perfectly trusted God. Because, by the way, if he perfectly trusted God and had perfect faith, he would be a perfect man. And that doesn't fit the Genesis narrative. Okay? He's growing and learning. And, but, but here we see he is not becoming weak in faith. But let's keep reading. He contemplated his own body. Stop and think about that. We're going to see he's about 100 years old. I might not even want to think about what it looks like to have a hundred-year-old man contemplating his own body as it relates to procreation. But that's what the text is getting you to think about. What does that look? Never mind. I don't want to know what it looks like. But here he is. hundred years old. Let's keep reading. It's pretty funny. <laughs> he contemplated his own body. What does he conclude as he contemplates his own body? Now as good as dead. 
since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. What do you get when you have a 100-year-old man thinking about his own body and thinking about his wife's body, and she's up there in years as well, thinking about having babies? I think you get something kind of funny. And you chuckle about it, and you say, that's crazy. Well, this is crazy. It's meant to be crazy. It's meant to have us say, that just is not going to work out. He and the missus are, you know, trying to figure out how they can have babies. 100 years old? This is crazy. Think how it would be Christmas time. We're getting together with my in-laws. And you know, they're not this old. They're in their 70s. And we're going to get together with in-laws and we're going to open presents and all the nieces and nephews and everything. And you know, I think most of the kids are beyond making birth announcements. I hope my wife and I aren't going to make a birth announcement. But you know, that's just kind of something that happens around the holidays and and we're going to be sitting around. And how about my father-in-law and my mother-in-law saying, you know, at the end... Uh, we have an announcement to make. No. <laughs> um, we're expecting. <laughs> you know, you say, not in the, not, you got to be kidding me, you know. Where's the, this isn't April Fool's, it's Christmas. you got to be kidding me. And they're not a hundred. And more significantly, in light of what's been said in Genesis, they've had children before. So while that seems crazy and funny, this situation with Abraham and Sarah is far crazier. You know, Abraham actually had offspring, but not through Sarah the way God said it was to be. There was a point in time he actually had had procreative ability. And he exercised it sinfully so. He's older now, and what does the text say? When he contemplates his body, it is now as good as dead. And he looks to his wife deadness of her womb, double death when it comes to procreation. Faith faces the apparently impossible. I think what's intended for us is to see verse 19, but to see it in context, and you can draw a line or draw one mentally from verse 19 back to verse 17. Back in verse 17 we read, Toward the end there, dealing with God's promise, it says, even God who gives life to the dead. That's meant for us to see the connection. God made this great promise to Abraham. And you know what? The God who's making the great promise to old man Abraham is the God who has the ability and who gives life to the dead. And then we read on. You know what? When Abraham evaluates himself, he says, I'm as good as dead. And when I evaluate Sarah, she's as good as dead too. You know what? We're talking about a God who makes promises, and this God gives life to the dead. Well, that's all interesting on a procreative level. Remember, though, Romans 4 is strategically placed after Romans 1, 2, and 3. And after you read Romans 1, 2, and 3a, you have to conclude what Ephesians says, and that is spiritually, we are dead. And there is no hope for us whatsoever. So with Abraham as the example of faith, on a physical level, all of a sudden we can relate to him on a spiritual level and say, you know what, there is hope. There is hope in faith. 
trusting in God and his promises, this God that gives life to the dead, if he can do that through Abraham and Sarah, you know what? He can give life to the dead. And now all of a sudden we can talk about life to the dead on, on the spiritual level as well. And we're more and more impressed with God. I just don't see how this could happen. There's no way this could happen. Well, that's true. It can happen. Apart from God supernaturally intervening. Well, that's true on a physical level with Abraham and Sarah, and that's true on a spiritual level with you and with me. Salvation is impossible. Jesus himself said as much. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, a man, than for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It can't be done. But here we see God gives life to the dead, the un- otherwise unexplicable. Well, let's move to a fourth, which is related to the third. But number four, a fourth faith fact that is vital to Christianity, faith glorifies God. Faith glorifies God. This is probably just the best thing we'll see all day today. This faith business glorifies God. Look at verse 20 there. It says, yet, by way of contrast, so you've got dead, womb as good as dead, body as good as dead, and then we've got yet. Verse 20. With respect to the promise of God, notice again, this is not faith in faith. This is faith in God and His promises. Yet with respect to the promise of God, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. I love that verse. I love that verse because of three vital components. Do you see them? Component number one, you've got the promise of God. Component number two, you have faith in the promise of God. And where you have, number one, the promise of God, and then faith in the promise of God, you have the glory of God. You have God being exalted. You have God being glorified. How about this? Abraham sees that this is humanly impossible. He looks to God. God made a promise. And so since God made a promise, he believes, he trusts God's promise. And as a result of Abraham trusting God's promise as true, as credible, God is exalted. God is glorified. Let me put it another way that might help you. God is treated as God. When we read, God was glorified. Synonym, i.e., Abraham treated God as if he were God. That's what happens. I love that. I love to see that. God says, this is what I say. I believe what God says. And by believing what God says, I'm acting as if God is God because he is. And that's another way of saying God is glorified. The same is true when it comes to salvation. God says what I know to be true, and if I debate it, my wife will confirm, I am a sinner. I violate God's holy law on so many different fronts. I'm a sinner before God. I I face just condemnation before God. God doesn't grade on a curve. I can find other people who do worse things than I do, but that's not the issue. The issue is God says where there's sin, there's death, and I have sinned, and I sin regularly. 
So this is what God says. And then God says, out of love and grace and compassion, I have my son born into this world. He becomes one of you. He becomes a human being. He then lives a perfectly righteous life on your behalf, Pat. And then I have him go to the cross to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for your sin, Pat. And then if you believe in him and not in yourself, you trust in him, his righteousness, and not in your own, I will declare you righteous, Pat, even though you're not. That's justification. And I can say... I don't know. I think maybe actually it's what he does and what I do. I'm not glorifying God because I'm not responding to God as if God were God. I'm hearing what God says and I'll say, well, okay, that's partially true, but here's what I actually believe. But when I say, God, this is what you say. I believe what you say. I trust what you say. I'm just treating God like God. The same is true for you as well. You agree with God about your sin. You agree with God about His Son. You obey God and agree with Him and believe in His Son and repent of your sins. You're treating God like God. This is over and against what the unbelievers did in chapter 1. I think it's on purpose that there's a contrast between Romans chapter 4 and this business about glorifying God in verse 20. You might even want to write it in your margin. But then turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Under the just condemnation of God are those who hear from God, if you will, and they say, la, 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 to me God is... And they treat God as if He weren't God. And they don't glorify God. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God. See, God has revealed Himself. They've heard from God. God has spoken. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. In other words, they didn't glorify God. In other words, they didn't treat God as if He were God. It's the same thing we're saying, worded a bit differently in chapter 4, verse 20. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You see the contrast? You see the difference? And Romans chapter 1, verse 21 is what we would call idolatry. Because idolatry at its very core refuses to acknowledge God for who He says He is. Faith is not asking you to turn your mind off and to believe in superstition. Faith is not saying... Well, this is on a different plane. We know this is what reality is and these are facts, but we want you to believe in uh, something totally different, mystical, has nothing to do with anything. Faith is, biblically speaking, not on talk shows, trusting what God says and thereby acknowledging that you are not God and abandoning that philosophy that says, to me God is, and saying, God has spoken, I agree with Him, I trust in Him, I have faith in Him and His promises, and you know what happens then? God is seen as God. God is glorified. Pat is not. When I say, to me God is, i.e. Romans 1, Pat is glorified. Pat is treated as 
quite frankly, God. And so it's great for us to see that faith, Christian faith, biblical faith, faith glorifies God because you take God at His word. You trust Him for being a truth teller. It's interesting, there's, there's, there's one religion on the planet that presents this view. That presents the view that says God did it all because you couldn't through His Son and you must believe in Him and not in yourself. In Him and Him alone, it's only by faith. And insofar as it does, I am led to believe not by faith, but quite frankly, by logic, based upon God's revelation. It's the one and only religion on planet Earth that justly gives God glory. Because it takes God for, for what He says. It takes Him at His word. Just as a footnote before we move on, as we look at Abraham, or Abram, at whatever stage, We're supposed to be impressed. You read Romans 4, and you say, wow, not to mention Hebrews. Abraham is a great man of faith. And we need to do that. But if I could just issue a little bit of a caution. What you don't see in Romans, in context, see, let's not rip chapter 4 out of context. In context, you don't see Abraham as someone who is just a great, powerful, strong individual because, man, he's got strong faith. That wouldn't fit Romans 1, 2, and 3. Roman, uh, excuse me, Abraham is spiritually bankrupt like everyone. And you know what makes Abraham great? Is his faith. But see, faith in and of itself is not virtuous. Faith in and of itself is not a work. Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith is dependence. Faith is trust because you can't trust in yourself. Because you have no virtue in and of yourself. And so by trusting, you're you're saying, I am not virtuous. God is virtuous and I need His virtue, if you will. And so let's keep things in the right perspective when we're impressed with Abraham. I want to be like Abraham and be a man of faith, a man who sees that I can't do it on my own and that I need to rely upon what God has done for me. And you know what? I'm just allowing him to carry me. I'm trusting him. That's a good picture of faith. Leon Morris, a respected New Testament scholar, weighs in on this, and I was thankful that he did in his commentary. He said, Abraham was made strong because of his faith indeed. But it was God, not faith, that provided the strength. That's worth repeating. Abraham was made strong because of his faith indeed. Grant that. But it was, not, but it, but it was God, not faith, that provided the strength. The faith, his faith was not the force. Right? It was God that did this. Faith was no more than the means by which he received it. He received the strength of God. It was God who gave the strength. Throughout this passage, Paul is concerned to emphasize the importance of faith. Abraham had nothing going for him except the promise of God. 
Be impressed with Abraham. That Abraham was willing to acknowledge Romans 1 to 3, if you will. I know he didn't have it. Spiritual bankruptcy. He contemplated his own body. And he said, I'm strong. I don't think so. He looked at his wife. We can do this together. Uh, that's the exact opposite picture we get. This can't be done by me. I cannot do this. So I will trust that God can do it for me. See, that's, that's Christian salvation. That's Christianity 101. That's Romans 4 in the context of Romans 1, 2, and 3. And it is to say with Jeremiah 32, verse 17, nothing is too difficult for you, God. Let's move on to number five, which is related as well, and then we'll wrap things up for this morning. Number five, a faith fact that is also vital to Christianity, and that is faith assures. Faith assures. It brings assurance. And this, again, ought not be separated. It's in the flow of things. But, but let's read in verse 21 and see this for emphasis. And being fully assured, a nice, powerful, heavy-duty, loaded word, could be translated entirely persuaded. It's even used in secular writings during New Testament times for, for business transactions. They've been ratified. They've actually happened. They're done. Paid for. I'm certain that I paid for this. And now it is mine. It's that kind of certainty where he says, and being fully assured. He couldn't say it stronger than that. That what God had promised, He was able also to perform. Let me ask you the question. I just suggested to you that faith assures. Let me ask you this very important question. What is it about faith that assures? Think about that, please. If it's true that faith brings assurance, what is it about faith that can bring the kind of assurance that says being fully assured. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. Abraham is fully assured. He got assurance because he knew that he was so strong in faith. Because he was so committed himself Boy, you know what? If you're committed to yourself and to your strength and to your fortitude, you too, like Abraham, can have great assurance. It's not what you see in the text. I hope you were looking for your answer in the text. What about faith assures? Well, it says that what God, flashing lights, you know, dancing around that word, What God had promised, more flashing lights, He was able also to perform. What about faith brings assurance? The object of your faith. God is the object of His faith and the promises of God. And that is what bolstered, that is what strengthened, that's what gave Him great, great, strong, sure assurance. 
And I love that. I love that as a pastor to be able to say, let me preach this to you. Let me come alongside of you and say, you need assurance? Let me help you with assurance. You know where Abraham got his assurance? It wasn't by looking in the mirror. It wasn't by thinking more highly of himself. It wasn't by trying to be a stronger person and having stronger faith himself, quite frankly. What made Abraham sure of his God? What can make you sure is your view of God and his promises. You know what, if Abraham at this point in time believed in a God that uh, was a God that he had created according to his own likeness, according to his own image, it's the kind of God he wanted to believe in. If he uh, was thinking of a God that was built upon, you know, trite, evangelical, you know, trinkety kinds of sayings, if he had built a God based upon some sort of billboard theology, bumper sticker theology, And God said to him, that's the God he's believing in. And God said to him, I'm going to make you, old man, the father of many nations. And then you have to wait years and years and years and years. And now you're pushing 100, ready to start pushing up the daisies is what you're pushing. You're pushing 100 stinking years old. And your wife, and you look at yourself, I'm as good as dead. And then she is too. I don't believe you. He would have no assurance. I would like to suggest to you, based upon the verse, based upon verse 21, that your assurance is directly related to your view of God and His promises. Abraham must have had a high view of God because his high view of God fueled his assurance. You want to have more confidence about the promises of God? You want to have more assurance in your life? You want to have assurance of salvation? You want to have assurance of you name it? Open up your Bible and start reading and start saying, God, who are you? Not what I want you to be. Not who I want you to be, but God, who do you say that you are? And then you're going to see this, this God is a sovereign God. He's the one in the very, you're going to get it at the very beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And then all of a sudden, you, as you keep reading, you're not even going to be out of Genesis yet, and you're going to see that this God who created is sovereignly in control over the whole deal. And then all of a sudden you're going to have your, your view of God bolstered and strengthened. And now all of a sudden you're going to see more and more. And you're going to see that He's perfectly righteous and He's perfectly holy. And you're going to see that this God is transcendent. He, he's beyond you. He is above you. He is, how about this, unreachable. Now I know it's also true that He is also the friend of sinners. That's also true. And that's significant and important. But don't put all your eggs in one basket. You have a lopsided view of who God is. How about Isaiah? Isaiah, as he has the vision in Isaiah 6, and and what does he see there? He sees the angels calling out, and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy! Over and over again, that's what they're doing. And as Bible teachers would have us to know, he's not just saying, the angels aren't just saying, sinless, sinless, sinless. Although that's true. When he says holy, holy means different. Holy means separated. You could translate it just to capture the idea so that we can have a right transcendent view of God. Those angels are there in effect saying, otherly, otherly, otherly. 
Different, 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 untouchable, 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 incomprehensible, incomprehensible, incomprehensible. They are saying, God, 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 is what they're saying. And saying, holy, holy, holy. And you say, why are you getting so fired up and exercised about this? If you have that kind of God in view, you will have confidence in Him. You will have assurance. Again, when I read verse 21, and being fully assured, and I say, God, I want that. And it's as if God could say to me, well then stop you know, living your life on Cracker Jack theology. Jesus is my buddy. It's true He's friend of sinners. That would be another time for another place and another sermon. I want this kind of assurance. I want you to have this kind of assurance in the promises of God. That what God has promised, God has promised, not me, not you, not someone who can't keep their word, someone who can't follow through, what God had promised. The God who gives life to the dead, right? He was able also to perform. (laughs) Isn't it good? Thank you for coming to my personal worship service because I am worshiping God like you wouldn't believe. It doesn't, quite frankly, get better than this. To think about this God who says to me in His Word, in Romans, what is, quite frankly, pretty tough for me to get my mind around. That that, that I can have perfect righteousness even though I am a sinner because Christ lived a perfectly righteous life for me, I know that's what it says. And then I can have my sins propitiated. I can have the wrath of God satisfied because Jesus, when He died on a cross, wasn't dying there as a mere martyr. He was dying there as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the just for the unjust, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. He's dying in my place. He rises again, according to Romans chapter 6, in my place. And if I believe in Him, If I trust in Him, if I depend upon Him, God will declare me righteous. He will justify me. And and it's not something that I do on on, on a performance level. And If that's what God says, I'm going to believe it. Unless I've created God in my own image, according to my own likeness, And I say in good Oprah fashion, to me God is. Then I just can't buy it. But this way I can. This is assuring. This is confidence. But it's not confidence in self. It's confidence in God. Please, as you read Romans 4, please read it in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3. So you can be impressed with Abraham, but quite frankly, so you can be impressed with God. He was so impressed with God, he believed God. And God, as we will see, credited it to him as righteousness. And that's what we're looking for. And that's what we'll focus on next time, and we're going to focus on how all of this comes to culmination 
in Christ, in His death and in His resurrection, which is applied to us so that we can be like Abraham and have ironclad assurance because we're trusting in the promises of God. Let's be done for this morning. Father, thank You for this great, great text of Scripture that is assuring, uh, assuring to us. It builds confidence It builds confidence in you that you are a God like this who can deliver. Help us to take cues from Abraham and to trust you and to believe in you and in your great promises. To move beyond believing in self, to move beyond believing in belief, but to have our fixed hope, have our hope fixed upon you and only you. Lord, we look forward to this week as we gather with our friends and we gather with our family members that it would be a good time for us to show our love for you even by loving our neighbors and those around us. We look forward to the Christmas Eve service as we can exalt and worship Christ and celebrating His birth. Give us a good and godly week where our assurance is strengthened as we look to you, the author and perfecter of the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.